Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to, the, to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now is the new exhibition, Audubon's Aviary, part one of The Complete Flock. It's beautiful. If you haven't already seen it, please take a visit. And we also have continuing our World War II and New York City exhibition, which everyone has raved about. So that too, if you haven't seen it, come, please do. And I hope you'll take the opportunity to visit not only these exhibitions, but all the other exciting offerings here, including our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, which is free with your admission during our Pay As You Wish Friday nights. Um, I just want to show you the flyer. If you don't already have it, we have some great films that we screen, uh, World War II and its legacy in film right now, with unbelievable speakers. So take a look. They're, they're right on the, um, the little display case as you walk out the um, auditorium back doors. Also, I just want to mention, relating to Lincoln, if you don't already have our brochure, which is also at the Visitor Services desk, we have some wonderful Lincoln programs coming up. The next one is Grant and Sherman with John Marzalek and Harold Holzer on April 2nd. So take a look at that. There's still some tickets left for that as well. Thank you, Jim. Okay. Um, I just want to thank, um, we, are, we just want to let Bank of America know how grateful we are for our free Friday night programs as well. Um, and I also want to ask, before we go on any further, how many people are members in the audience? That is almost everyone, I think. So, you know, we want to encourage those two people who are not members. <laughs> become part of the family. Your membership helps support, support all our education programs and all these wonderful activities that we have to offer, bringing all our wonderful speakers in too. And for those of you who, maybe you're getting a little bored with the level of membership you're, you have, you can upgrade. So, we're, we're, but whatever you are, whoever you are, we're happy to have you with us. You're a fabulous audience and you have great energy. I was just talking with our speakers how exciting it is to have a full house like this. So, tonight's program, Seward Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many wonderful, prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give them a hand. I'd also like to recognize and thank two of our trustees who are with us tonight, Lon Jacobs and Carl Mengus, and all our Chairman's Council members in the audience tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them a hand, too. The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach the two standing mics in the aisles. I always feel like I'm on an airplane and just pointing out the different aisles. And 
We ask that you do this so that the speakers on stage and everyone in the audience can hear you. We are also recording it, so we, no one will hear you unless you speak into the mic in our podcast for our greater audience outside the auditorium. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store. So on with our introductions. We are so pleased to welcome Walter Starr, the author of the critically praised biography, John Jay, Founding Father, and the new book, Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man. Before concentrating on writing biographies, Mr. Starr practiced international law for 25 years in Hong Kong and with the Securities and Exchange Commission in Washington. Lou Major is Professor of American Studies and History at Rutgers University and the author of many books on American history, including most recently, Lincoln's Hundred Days, The Emancipation Proclamation, and The War for the Union. Professor Major's essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The American Scholar, Slate, and Salon, among many others. Before we begin, I'd just like to ask that you turn off your cell phones. If you have an electronic device, um, please turn the beeper off as well. And now, please join me in welcoming our guest speakers. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming out this evening, uh, Seward was very long-lived, and we're going to try to get to as many topics as we possibly can uh, in talking about this, uh, this fascinating and important figure. I, I thought we'd start, Walter, by, by trying to set the scene for, for Seward the man, uh, Seward's personality, if you will, before we get into the details of his career as a politician. Uh, you have in the book a, a remarkable quote from Noah Brooks, who in 1863 said about Seward, quote, he was small in stature, big as to nose, light as to hair and eyes, averse to all attempts upon his portrait, very Republican in dress and manner of living. He's affable, pleasant, accessible, smoking cigars always, ruffled or excited never, astute, keen to perceive a joke, appreciative of a good thing and fond of good vitals, if not of luxurious furniture. Did, did, did Brooks capture uh, Seward? Yes, I think all of that is true. I guess if I were to add um, a couple of things about him. Um, he was a man who could very easily relate to, to, to the, the common dust man and to royalty. You know, when he traveled by coach, he would generally sit up on the box with the driver, um, a, to chat with the driver and catch up on the local news, and B, to smoke his cigar without disturbing the other passengers. Um, Brooks doesn't mention there, but he was also fond of a glass of wine, or more than one glass of wine. And when ministers would visit the Seward household, um, as they did, ministers, actors, diplomats, politicians, soldiers, I mean, they were all guests around his dinner table. The ministers would often write home about how you know, he had mm, perhaps four glasses of wine if you count from the start of the evening through the end. Um, and there were 
reports that, that he was drunk. Um, uh, he at one point answered a letter from a somewhat officious uh, young uh, soldier, said that you know, another soldier was claiming that he was drunk from, from morning till night, and Seward wrote back airily to say, it wasn't true, leave him alone, don't arrest him. Uh -huh. Of course, Lincoln neither smoked nor drank, so it makes for a very interesting uh, right. relationship, doesn't right. it? Right, and at one point in Lincoln's presence, uh, Seward said to a, a visiting British um, reporter that he regretted to say that, that Lincoln neither smoked nor drank, and he could not understand how a man could be elected president of the United States <laughs> without engaging in at least one of these behaviors. And Lincoln predictably then told a little story, the point of which was that the, the mere absence of vice was not a virtue. <laughs> well, um, of course, before Seward and Lincoln became uh, friends and, and worked so closely together, they were competitors for the nomination in 1860. Indeed, going into that nomination, uh, Seward, the New Yorker, is, is considered the favorite. Uh, what happened? Uh, why, why does Seward not get the nomination in 1860? Uh, it's complicated. Uh, it's a large part of chapter seven of the book. We, we have time. <laughs> but. Um, I'd say there are a couple of factors, um, some kind of minor and some you know, larger. Uh, the convention is held in Chicago, and Lincoln's friends in Chicago arrange some of the details in ways that help Lincoln. So for example, um, they print fake tickets for the event. So imagine that there were roughly 150% more tickets for this event than there were people. And you let all the Lincoln supporters know that fact. Well, the hall is going to be filled with Lincoln folks, and the Seward folks are out in the, in the lobby trying to get in. Um, bigger factors, though, I think include um, Seward's views on immigrants and uh, Seward's views on slavery. On immigrants, as governor of New York, Seward had made it clear that he favored immigration and he had made a huge uh, cause of the education of Catholic children here in New York City. And people had long memories in those days and there were many anti-immigrant Republicans for whom Seward, because of those actions as governor, because of um, his pro-immigration stance, was not an acceptable nominee. Lincoln. Lincoln's views on immigration were just unknown at the time. Right. And so not for the, f the first or last time, the convention opted for someone with less well-known views. So there's a nativist strain, is what you're talking about, in the Republican Party that we know comes from that know-nothing party. And that nativist strain didn't like Seward's support for Catholicism or, or for Catholic education. Right. Um, now, what about the abolitionist side of things? Where, where do we position Seward? on the all-important question of, of slavery? Well, I think that at the moment of the convention, um, that there's really no daylight between Lincoln and Seward on this issue. Uh, they both believe that slavery is wrong, but they will say, without even taking a breath, that they believe that it should be left to die of its own weight in the South, that the North should not interfere in any way, shape, or form with slavery where it exists in the South, that it should be left to sort of time and the, the good moral judgment of Southerners to, um, to gradually right. end slavery um, in the South. 
And yet Stewart had a reputation, though, for being a radical, in part because of one speech that he gave, right? Uh, does that affect in any way uh, his candidacy for the presidency? Oh, absolutely. And could you talk about that speech? Sure. He, in, in 1850, uh, during the debate on the compromise, what we call the Compromise of 1850, he gives um, a, a great long speech um, in which he argues for the immediate admission of California as a state and says that all these other issues, the fugitive slave law and slavery in the District of Columbia, those are mere distractions. The most important thing is to cement California to the Union because with California, you, you have what we now know as the lower 48. You have what he calls a great seat of empire, the greatest the world has ever known. Um, and in the course of this long speech, he says that the, that the Constitution dedicates the Western territories to freedom and not to slavery, and that there's indeed a higher law than the Constitution, which also consecrates those territories to freedom. And just as in our day, speeches are often boiled down to sound bites, this speech was boiled down to two words, higher law. And every school child in America knew in 1860 that Seward believed in a higher law which limited the spread of slavery. Um, uh, so that speech, higher law, and a speech that he gave in Rochester in 1858 in which he declared that there was an irrepressible conflict between freedom and slavery and that America would one day either be entirely free or entirely slave. Um, that speech boiled down to just two words, irrepressible conflict. Right. There so were the, even though Lincoln had said something similar in the House Divided speech, Seward gets tarred with the brush of a kind of radicalism that in the middle of this crisis, someone like Lincoln can seem more moderate. Correct. Yeah. The, the, so as I, right, Lincoln seems more moderate, although I really don't think that at the time their there views There was much are, difference. Yeah. So, Seward must have been an ambitious man. I mean, he's elected to governor at, what, 37 years old, elected to the Senate, wanted the presidency, doesn't get the nomination. How does he respond? How does he react to it? Uh, there's a wonderful um, quote that I found in, in a journal uh, up at Harvard. Um, a friend of his, a minister, is in the garden with Seward um, with a couple of friends. And they, he, he learns the result of the first ballot. He's way ahead, but he doesn't win on the first ballot. And they chat for another few minutes, and then a man comes running to them from the telegraph office, waving a slip of paper. And even before he reaches Seward, Seward knows what has happened, because the man is screaming at the top of his lungs, oh god, oh god, it's all gone. Abraham Lincoln has the nomination. And the journal goes on to say that for a moment, Seward turned white and said nothing. And then he resumed the conversation, just you know, as natural as anything, and was less agitated than any of his friends at the moment. And then, you know, moving on a couple of days, he you know, puts out a public letter supporting Lincoln. Um, and within a few months, he's agreed to go out and stump for Lincoln. Which is really remarkable. He does this enormous tour, speaking on behalf of Lincoln's election. He does. He, he speaks um, in essentially all the northern states. The southern states, in a sense, don't matter because Lincoln isn't even going to be on the ballot in those states. Um, and uh, gets as far west as Kansas, up in Maine, up mm -hmm. in Minnesota. Um, 
on the eve of the election comes right here to New York City and speaks to you know, an overflowing crowd, you know, at least 10,000 people. Um, his message here in New York City um, is that um, Lincoln isn't going to change anything. That you know, he's going to carry on the existing policies of um, you know, allowing slavery in the South, uh, not interfering in slavery. You know, the one thing that he's going to change is that he's not going to, you know, if he can prevent it, um, allow for any more slave states to be created in the West. Sure. For, forbid the extension of slavery into the territories. So is it clear from right at the beginning that Lincoln is going to ask Seward to be his Secretary of State? And I know there's some back and forth, some positioning. This always happens in politics, right? We like to think it only happens today. It happened then as well. Tell us about Seward becoming Secretary of State and, and joining Lincoln's cabinet. Right. Well, in the 19th century, Secretary of State was sort of president-in-waiting. And so it was quite common to, for a president to give that position to the person that he thought should become president next. Indeed, at that, at that speech um, here in New York City, there were people marching around with banners that said, Lincoln in 60, Seward in 64. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Um, which strikes us as somewhat disloyal, but in the 19th century, presidents were generally one-term presidents, so it wasn't that unusual. Um, so I think that really Lincoln, Lincoln wrote Seward to say that, that he had it in mind from the moment of his nomination that if he was elected, he would uh, nominate Seward as Secretary of State. I think Lincoln really did have it in mind. Now, it almost didn't happen because on the eve of Lincoln's uh, inauguration, Seward resigns. He withdraws his acceptance of the office. And, and why does he do that? There are a lot of times when I wish I could have him sitting there, Luke, <laughs> and ask him these right. questions. Although, well, although sure. I, I mean, some of it is politics, and some of it is gamesmanship right? right and positioning. Right. Um, I, of course, I, he couldn't have been happy to have begun to learn that some of the other cabinet members were not exactly going to be uh, Seward supporters. Indeed. Right, there are a number of them who are very much anti-Seward. Right, he he's unhappy about the inclusion of people like Salmon Chase and Gideon Wells in the cabinet. It's, it's ironic because if you ask to name the, the cabinet member with which with whom he had the longest relationship, it's Salmon Chase. But by the time of the, the eve of uh, Lincoln's inauguration, Chase has emerged as the leader of the kind of anti-Seward uh, forces. But I think the key reason he sends in that resignation is Lincoln's inaugural address. He sees it um, right when Lincoln arrives in DC. He gives Lincoln a long set of comments, basically saying, tone it down, and for God's sake, change the end of it, which is more or less a threat to the South. Um, and then he doesn't hear anything from Lincoln. And so he's left to assume that Lincoln is going to give the address more or less as he saw, as he Seward saw it in draft, and he doesn't want to be part of a bellicose administration. He wants to be part of an administration dedicated to kind of bringing the South back into the Union. Um, and so he tenders his resignation. Lincoln pleads with him, and I assume I don't know this for a fact, but I assume shares with him uh, his desire also to to try to lure the South back into the Union. Uh, and Seward withdraws right. his withdrawal and becomes Secretary of State. Now, Seward is not only seen, um, not only does he become the Secretary of State, he's seen by the radicals over time as 
being the de facto president, right? They, they say that he controls Lincoln in some ways, uh, that, that Lincoln in some ways is almost a puppet of Seward. Where, where, what's your take on, I mean, we can understand where a lot of that comes from, but what's your take on that, that relationship and the internal divisive politics within the cabinet? Right. Well, I, I regret to have to say this because you know, Lincoln is a greater man than Seward, but at, at the outset, Seward himself was sort of hoping to be de facto president uh -huh. um, and to have Lincoln as kind of the nominal president. He, uh, Seward joked with one of the European diplomats that really it was not that different a situation than, say, the, the British monarchy. You know, you have a nominal head of state in the form of the monarch, but real power rests with the head of the ruling party, i.e. himself. Right. Um, and indeed, he was frequently referred to in the press as the premier or the prime minister. Right. Um, uh, but fairly quickly, Seward realizes that Lincoln, as he puts it in a letter to his wife not long after, is the best of us and that he has real executive ability. Um, and, um, and, the, and I think as the two of them become more friendly, that admiration only grows over time. Absolutely. It makes it an even more remarkable story, though, to understand that all that Seward had to do during the war as Secretary of State, he did knowing that there were members inside the cabinet who despised him and were plotting against him. There were radical senators who despised him. Mary Todd Lincoln couldn't stand him. Uh, and yet he continues to play this incredible steady hand as Secretary of State. Let, let's get to, obviously, some of the things he actually did that, that made him so indispensable, as your subtitle says. One area that I was less familiar with than, than obviously his role as Secretary of State, we think about diplomacy, was his role over domestic security. And you write at length about uh, some of what he did in that regard, which mirrors in some ways Lincoln's own record on civil liberties. Can you, can you fill us in more about that, about what was his responsibilities with respect to domestic security during the war? Right. Um, well, almost unasked, you know, right as he becomes Secretary of State, he, he sort of takes over what we would today call, um, you know, counterintelligence um, and, and the arrest of suspected spies. Um, and um, by and large, he's not the person, he, occasionally, he gives an order and says, you know, arrest that Lou Mazur um, because he's, you know, spying. More often what happens is that he gets a telegram from Baltimore or Boston or whatever to say, you know, we've arrested so-and-so because he's, um, you know, recruiting for the Southerners or um, is sending arms to the South. Um, what do you want us to do with him? And, and these telegrams come not to the Secretary of War and not to the President, but to Secretary of State Seward, and Seward will respond generally, you know, send him to, um, you know, Fort Lafayette or some other prison, and then it's to Seward that people, lawyers, friends, family, plead for the release of these prisoners. Um, he, you know, during this period in which he's in charge of domestic security, about a thousand people um, in the North are arrested and held in prison on his say-so. He's reported to have told the British minister during this period that he had a little bell on his table that he could ring and order the arrest of any person in, in, in the North 
and that no one other than the president could order his release. I, I don't believe that he actually said that. I think it was made up by one of his many enemies. Right. <laughs> but he could have said it. Sure, and that makes it a challenge for you throughout, doesn't it? I mean, it makes it a challenge for all historians to suss through the evidence and to know that so much of it comes from anti-administration newspapers or opponents who afterwards say something. I think you do a brilliant job here informing the reader where these quotes are coming from and how to sort through their veracity. Yeah. So, so domestic security for yeah. the first year. And then when Edwin Stanton becomes Secretary of War, a much more forceful Secretary of War, um, he persuades Lincoln that this is not really the proper role of the Secretary of State. And I think by that point, Seward is quite happy to get rid of it. The Secretary, yeah. you have to bear in mind that he doesn't have an army of people in Foggy Bottom to carry out his commands. The entire um, you know, domestic staff of the State Department would kind of fit in that section of those seats over there. right? And they weren't senior people, they were clerks. Um, and so running the domestic security was you know, alongside running foreign policy, alongside helping Lincoln with political issues was a huge task, and well, he was happy, I think, to get rid of it. And he has another responsibility, right? And that's preventing foreign intervention into the war. Right. And that possibility is there from the very start, and I mean, uh, Seward's incredible accomplishment is, is to constantly be on top of the issue. Can you talk to us in general terms about the measures taken to be certain that England and France in particular don't enter the war on the side of the Confederacy, which would have been absolutely disastrous for the Union effort. Right. Well, I think, you know, there were, a, you know, when a nation like England considers going to war with the United States, there are gonna be a lot of things it thinks about other than what the United States is doing diplomatically. But the, the key things that Seward does um, are to, to make it very clear to the British, both through the minister in Washington and through his very able minister in London, Charles Francis Adams, following in the footsteps of his father and grandfather, uh, that support for the South, recognition of the South, meant war with the United States. Uh, and Seward loses no opportunity to remind the British of the, their weaknesses in such a war, that they have a great deal of merchant shipping that would be vulnerable to American naval attack, and they have these colonies just north of us in Canada that are very lightly defended. Mm. Um, the other thing he does that I knew nothing about before I did this research was to strengthen the friendship with Russia. Um, in the middle of the 19th century, the United States and Russia were friends. They were allies. And, um, and Seward does everything in his power to strengthen and to publicize that relationship. And as the British ministers are thinking about the possibility of intervention, one of the key factors that holds them back is the probability that war with the United States would also mean war with Russia. Um, and so keeping that friendship with Russia strong and publicizing that friendship whenever he could by printing in the newspapers you know, warm letters from the czar to the president, right. um, I think does help keep Britain and France out now, of war. Now, there is a, a delicate event in late 1861 that in the book, you call it the Cuban Missile Crisis of the Civil War, uh, the Trent Affair. Can you tell us about that, uh, which really very nearly almost brings, uh, brings England into the war? Um, the Trent was a British merchant ship on its way from Cuba to England and was stopped by an American naval captain not far from Cuba. 
stopped because he had heard a rumor, which proved true, that four Confederate diplomats were on board the Trent with bound for Europe where they were going to seek recognition for the Confederacy. He stops the boat, you know, sends a couple shots across the bow to force it to stop, seizes the prisoners in a dramatic scene from the, the deck of the boat, and brings them to the United States as prisoners. Uh, when word of that reaches the United States, he's hailed as a hero, and the Congress uh, you know, votes him a gold medal. Um, when word reaches Britain, he's denigrated, and Lincoln and Seward and every other American is denigrated for this assault on the British flag. Seward receives, in late December of 1861, the formal British demand, apologize and return the four men to British control. Um, and his real accomplishment is, in just a handful of days between receiving that formal demand and having to give the response, because he learns informally from the British minister that he only has seven days in which to respond, in bringing Lincoln and the cabinet round. We actually have a draft in Lincoln's hand of what Lincoln thinks should be the response. Basically, Lincoln was going to suggest international arbitration, um, which would have taken months, if not years. And the British, I think, would have broken off diplomatic relations, um, and it might well have led to war. And Seward gradually persuades Lincoln and the other members of the cabinet that it's not worth it. You know, war with Britain means almost certainly losing the war with the Confederacy. Just give them up. And he helps to persuade the public for this as well through cleverly timed leaks to the newspapers. Do you consider those, um, those maneuvers on his part his greatest accomplishment as Secretary of State? I mean, managing to prevent foreign intervention and what was involved in that. And the Trent Affair was just one of ongoing incidents into the war until after 1863, it looks like it's not going to happen. Uh, did you see that as one of his great achievements? It's certainly one of his great achievements. Um, I'm okay. not sure. Well, it allows me to ask you, so what else? What else? <laughs> um, you know, Alaska, the, the one thing, you know, when I told people I was writing this book, the one thing that taxi drivers know about Seward <laughs> is that he bought Alaska. And I think that Seward would actually be happy about that because he was very proud of Alaska. Um, and what I didn't know and what I don't think many people know is that Alaska was really only kind of one piece of his post-war ambitions. Um, it's an incredible story. Mention some of the other places that he had his eyes on. Well, okay. Let's talk about building an empire. Right. Okay. So British Columbia, Baja California, Hawaii, the Panama Canal Zone. Um, and, and some of these are more than just pipe dreams. So, for example, with respect to the Panama Canal Zone, um, he negotiates a treaty with Colombia, which at the time controls Panama, uh, to allow the United States to build a canal. And he and some friends here in New York organized the private company that's going to undertake the work. He gives a speech here in New York City talking about how the, the canal will be sort of the great public-private enterprise of the late 19th century, and when it's completed will be one of the sort of seven wonders of the world. Um, you know, it doesn't happen. The, the Colombian Senate doesn't ratify the treaty, and I don't think technically that could have been built. But Seward not only buys Alaska, he really kind of lays the framework. I forgot to mention the Virgin Islands. He negotiates a treaty to buy the Virgin Islands for much less than we actually buy them for 50 <laughs> years later. Um, he lays the framework for the American empire. 
which right. is, of course, a controversial thing today, but... And what are some of the ideological underpinnings of that? Because this is something he believed in very early on, and, and it's counterintuitive because the Whig party, of which he was a member, tended to be less uh, expansionist, right? The idea of manifest destiny is coined by the Democrats, not by the Whigs. So where is, where is Seward coming from? He does occasionally, as a Whig politician, say things like, um, you know, we don't need any more land. But he also, in, from a very early point in his career, talks about how the American empire will expand so that, you know, it, it reaches, you know, the equator and the, the Arctic Circle. Um, he has a vision that the United States is not only going to expand to sort of fill the lower 48, but to fill much of North America. I mean, remember that, that you know, Mexico at this point is in a very fragile state, and Canada is just a collection of unhappy colonies. So right. his ambitions for British Columbia were not at all unrealistic. Um, the local British Columbia newspapers, many of them were arguing that British Columbia should annex <laughs> itself to the United States. Um, and it ties back in with what I was talking about in terms of his work as governor in favor of the immigrants. He saw the United States as kind of a natural magnet, not just for territory, but for people. Um, he, he thought immigrants were a tremendous resource and was always in favor of bringing them to the United States. Um, and he saw the United States as an international center of commerce, diplomacy, yeah, the trade element must have been also significant. Yes. Ports and right. seas. Yeah. Right. As, as a New Yorker, I mean, he's not actually from New York City, but he's very closely tied with many of the, the leading merchants and bankers of New York City. Um, from a very early age, he's keen to see um, an expansion of, the, of trade, not just across the Atlantic with Europe, uh, but across the Pacific with Asia. So I'm going to bring you back in this way to, to uh, to the war and to the subject of emancipation, because here he's deeply interested in acquiring all these territories, and yet I was intrigued to learn that he's an opponent of these schemes of colonization, which Lincoln himself was in support of, at least until 1863, the idea oh, indeed of, after. <laughs> well, we can argue about that, but, <laughs> um, but certainly publicly, at least, through 1863. Um, but Seward's opposed to it. And, you know, it's the idea that um, blacks, free blacks, are going to voluntarily be relocated in, the, in these other places. Um, so I want to bring you back to sort of Seward and emancipation, Seward's ideas about colonization. Why is he opposed to that? Well, on colonization, a couple of things. One, he's the Secretary of State, so he's the one who has to try to persuade these foreign nations to take large numbers of American blacks, and he is thus much more conscious than Lincoln. There aren't a lot of takers. Yeah. So that's one point. But there's also an ideological point. Um, as he puts it um, not long after Lincoln's death, that um, you know, this was the one issue on which the two of them disagreed, because he, Seward, was always in favor of bringing people to the United States rather than sending them away. Mm. Um, he's not, by any matter of means, you know, free of racial prejudice, but he does see the free blacks as a resource for the United States rather than a problem. Which um, fits with the idea of free labor, free men needing that kind of labor. Right. And, and yet, and yet <laughs> he opposes, uh, at least initially, the issuance of Emancipation Proclamation. And uh, in July 22nd at that cabinet meeting, he, he argues against it. Uh, yes. Um, Again, I wish I could talk with him, but he, 
Um, he believed that the war was ending slavery anyway, that as the Union troops advanced, blacks were you know, taking their freedom or you know, coming into the camps, that, um, that perhaps slavery in some tenuous form would survive the war, but not for very long. Right. And so, um, uh, and on the other side, he was concerned about the foreign reaction, the possibility that Britain and France uh, keen to get Southern cotton, would see the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation as um, preventing uh, the growth of cotton because it could only be grown by slaves. This was what people thought. Um, uh, he was concerned about the possibility of, um, of racial violence in the South. Uh, he was concerned about the loss of the border state votes. Um, so, and not that Lincoln wasn't concerned about these issues, but by the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, Seward was more concerned. And so he, at that July cabinet meeting, I believe, said, don't do it. But for heaven's sake, if you're going to do it, don't do it right now. Right. And right. persuades Lincoln to postpone it for a few months. Right. Well, both took a sort of gradualist, evolutionary approach to the subject. Uh, of course, by January of 1865, we have Seward doing some bidding in terms of, uh, shall we say, manipulating or even purchasing votes yes. in support of the 13th Amendment. And that's something I wanted to ask you about, because you, you're very direct about this, but it's not the only example of Seward as, as politician, and, and we may want to call it corruption, but it may have been standard operating procedure for that time. So not only is he purchasing votes for that, you know, later in the book you talk about uh, the Johnson impeachment trial, and perhaps there's some money exchanging hands there. Uh, even later in the book you talk about trying to get the appropriations bill for the purchase of uh, Alaska to go through, and maybe there's some exchange of money there. Can you talk about this, about Seward's role as right. uh, an agent who gets things done. Right. Um, well, you know, you know, he grew up in what his, his cabinet colleague Wells called, you know, the vicious school of New York politics. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, he, you know, from a relatively young age was very, you know, aware of the role of money in politics, uh, the importance of having money and distributing it well. Um, and so, in, with respect to the 13th Amendment, you know, the, he hires a set of shady lobbyists, most of them from right here in New York City. Absolutely. <laughs> um, in part because this was where the problem was. In order to get the 13th Amendment through the House, you were going to have to get some Democratic votes, and the Democratic votes that seemed to be available were from New York State. Um, and so Seward hires the shady lobbyists and they go to work. One of them writes to him at one point. Um, he says, I'm confident we can get the amendment through. If patriotism doesn't do it, money will surely do the trick. <laughs> now I don't have, in, with respect to the 13th Amendment, I don't actually have kind of the dollar figures the way I do with respect to some of these later things. Um, but certainly there are conversations about appointments. You know, um, you know one, one fellow writes and says, look, I could do this if you could look, about, look at my brother for this appointment in, uh, in the diplomatic corps. And that was not viewed as corruption at the time. That was viewed as sort of the normal back quid pro quo. normal sure. quid pro quo of politics. Handing people dollar bills, that was viewed as corruption. But he did that too. 
<laughs> and I think it's certainly, I mean, the clearer example is with respect to, say, the, the Johnson impeachment, where Seward is involved in the effort to raise money for the Johnson Defense Fund. And we have the bank records to show that about $100,000 was raised, and we have the lawyer's bill to show that $11,000 precisely was spent on the legal team. So where is the other 90000 well, it mainly goes to lobbyists, some of them the same shady New York lobbyists. And in all likelihood, some of that made its way into the pockets of the senators who voted to acquit sure. Johnson. Now, let me ask you this question. As, as we near the end of his uh, term with Lincoln as Secretary of State, uh, he too is an object of the assassination plot. Uh, why is that? I mean, why, why is Seward also picked out? Uh, to be assaulted on that same day. It goes back to your comment about being viewed as de facto president. There's actually a letter from John Wilkes Booth to his sister which says other brains than Lincoln's rule the country. Now, he doesn't mention Seward by name, but I'm reasonably sure that it was Seward whom he had in mind. And Booth thus targets Seward for assassination. Seward is a, sort of an invalid. He's been injured in a carriage accident. The assassin bursts into his sick room a pistol in one hand, a knife in the other. The pistol isn't working because he's already used it as a club, but the knife works quite well to <laughs> slash Seward um, several times about the face and neck. Um, Seward rolls off the bed. His son and another man grab the assassin, getting stabbed themselves in the process. Uh, he miraculously survives. Incredible. I'm always interested in the decisions that writers make. Um, you open the book. I won't give anything away, but you open the book with that scene and then flashback. Um, I'd be interested to learn why you chose that scene to open with. It's, it's a great scene and it's a riveting scene, but you may have thought about different ways of I opening did. the book. I did. I thought, for example, about where you opened this discussion with his disappointment about not being the nominee. I thought about opening with his great uh, commencement speech at Union College mm -hmm. in 1820 uh, in the midst of the, the Missouri crisis when he says that the Union will be perpetual because that really is sort of a theme of, of his entire life. But um, my son actually said, Dad, you got to start with the blood. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I do have a few more questions for you, but before so, uh, I just want to say that we will be taking questions from the audience uh, in a few moments. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question when the time comes, please approach one of the two standing mics uh, in the aisles. Uh, before asking your question, please tell us your name. Uh, and out of respect for other people who are waiting their turn, please ask only one question, no run-on questions. Uh, two staff members will be on hand uh, if you need any assistance. But before we turn to questions, and, and we've only been able to cover uh, a small part of, of this incredibly rich life and story. There, there are sort of at least two other elements I want to I talk about. Uh, first and foremost, his relationship with his wife, yes. who is an amazing character, Frances Seward, uh, who's probably more radical than her husband. Oh, yes. And your quotes from her letters, and yet twice you refer to their relationship, their marriage, as curious. Can you, can you tell us about Frances Seward and about the Seward marriage? Well, she's a politician's wife who hates politics and who hates political parties and political events. I mean, that to me is very curious. Um, and moreover, she, you know, it's not just that she stays at home in Auburn and leaves, you know, her husband down in Washington or over in Albany by himself. 
Um, she spends much of the, the latter part of her life in her sick room, um, with the blinds closed, seeing no one, um, you know, communicating really, from a biographer's perspective, it's great, communicating at length with her husband by letter, and he writes back to her. But, um, you know, the, he, as a young man, I think, if you, know, if you asked him, would have said, yes, I'm ambitious, I want to go into political life. And so why he chooses a woman who, you know, even when he's first elected governor, and they're, they're both young and in good health, she chooses not to attend his inauguration as governor. So I find that curious. Yeah, no, that's, that is curious. And, and her letters, can you say something more about her as, a, as, as an intellectual, as a, as a political person? I mean, she, she gravitated to Sumner, who, who, who right. she liked a great deal. Right. She, as you say, she is more radical than her husband on lots of issues. Um, one of the sort of aha moments in my research was when I discovered that that her best friends were among the handful of women who organized the Seneca Falls Convention at which it was declared that all men and women are created equal. Now, Frances was not herself kind of a card-carrying member of these early feminist organizations, but these were her views, these were her friends, these were the people with whom she spent time. Um, and similarly, on slavery, you know, during the, the run-up to the Emancipation Proclamation, um, she writes to her husband and says, look, if he's not going to issue, he, Lincoln, is not going to issue that Emancipation Proclamation, resign. You owe it to yourself and to your children and to your country and to your God right. to do so. Right. Uh, at another point, she writes and says that she regrets the president's comments about union. He, he acts as if the mere keeping together of a handful of states is more important than the freedom of four million people. Mm. Um, so there's no question that, that she is you know, more radical than her husband, um, in some respects sort of more political yeah, um, yeah. even than her very political husband from her cloistered bedroom. And yet the assassination attempt on her husband Maybe didn't succeed in killing him, but she dies shortly thereafter. Right. right. She, she actually, when her husband had the carriage accident, um, the children in Washington sent her a telegram saying, come immediately, he's, you know, he's near death, which he was after the carriage accident. She did. She got on the train, traveled through the night, arrived in Washington, and nursed her husband for the two weeks, and thus she is in the house on the night of the assassination attempt in which her husband is slashed, her son um, is... is the pistol was used to club her son Frederick to near death, and every letter written in the days after the assassination attempt said Frederick will die. Everyone was confident of that. Wow. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible family story. Of course, his daughter Fanny uh, also passes at an early age, at 21, I believe. And, um, but, but Seward keeps on uh, and keeps going on. Uh, why don't we now, uh, why don't I invite you? I see some people have already come up to the mics, which is Terrific, and uh, why don't we turn now to some questions from the audience. Uh, sir, I believe you were first. Thank you. Please tell uh, us your name. I'm Jim Pasinich, I'm a docent here, and my question, and you touched on this in your, in your discussion, is about the Albany plan that Seward was gonna put into effect where Lincoln is a figurehead president and the power really resides with him, himself, and uh, with Salmon Chase. Um, what happened? Uh, how long did that last? Did Lincoln know about it? Um, and, and, uh, and, and why did it end? Um, I guess I don't have to restate the question. Could, it, could everyone hear that on the mics? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it, 
Lincoln surely knows about it. One of the letters that I found uh, was from uh, an editor in New Hampshire uh, writing to Lincoln in January b before Lincoln takes office saying, after the appointment of Seward has been announced as a tentative appointment saying, you know, it's a mistake. You know, he wants to run things, you know, don't appoint him, whatever else you do. Um, so Lincoln is well aware of, of Seward's ambitions to, to run things. Um, it doesn't last very long because, I mean, there's a, a, a moment, it may not be the only moment, but there's a moment that's accessible to us as historians because it's written down. On April 1st, 1861, Seward writes a note to the president in which he says, that you know, we've been in office for a month and we have no policy, foreign or domestic. And he goes on to sort of criticize the lack of policy. And at the end, he says, once things are decided, someone must take charge and implement them. I'm not seeking authority, but I'm not shirking it either. And Lincoln writes back, he, I don't think he actually hands it to Seward, but he writes out, as he often did, what he was thinking. Uh, he writes back and says, we do have a policy, and by the by, you helped create our policy. And as to who's going to do things, I must do it. And if you have to pin a moment when Lincoln sort of puts his foot down and says, I am the president, and you are just my Secretary of State, it's April 1st of 1861. Thank you. Uh, we'll go back and forth to each side, sir. Yes. <clears throat> my name is Jim Mackin. Um, in the early annals of New York City education history, that is public education, there was the matter of the uh, Irish immigrant children getting public education or not. And I believe Governor Seward at the time um, jumped into that uh, issue. Does that tell us anything about his pol political character and his beliefs? Um, he did jump into that issue with both feet, and what's most interesting is that he jumped into it. He was a Whig, the first Whig governor of New York. By and large, the Whigs were quite happy with the system of, of public education here in New York City, and he, Seward, was sort of going against the grain of his party to say, no, this is a problem. You have thousands of children who are not going to school at all, and we're going to do something about it. Um, and he said that in his first message, and the legislature did nothing, and he said it again in his second message, and he kept saying it, and he worked uh, with um, the bishop, later archbishop of New York, John Hughes, to get legislation through um, with very little support from the Whig Party, really basically what we would call a bipartisan effort, crossing, but really more support from the Democrats. Um, this is one of a number of instances in which Seward kind of doesn't fit in the box of the party to which he's attached at the moment. Thank you. Over here, yes. What role, if any, did Seward play with Lincoln at Gettysburg and in the formation of that speech? Mm. Good question. Good question. Seward is one of two cabinet members who goes with Lincoln by train up to Gettysburg. Um, and they stay in adjoining houses, and we know that Lincoln goes from his house to the house where Seward is staying uh, that night and spends about an hour. Um, I think it's fair to assume that they talk about um, the speech because they've talked about so many other documents over the years, uh, but we don't actually have a copy of the Gettysburg Address with Seward's editing. But I think in all likelihood, Seward would have talked that night with uh, his friend about the address. Um, 
Seward and Lincoln on the day, um, on, the, on the morning, um, uh, spend about an hour and a half, just the two of them, in a carriage touring the battlefield where bones are still visible. You know? And I think part of the sort of very somber atmosphere of, of Lincoln's address comes from that experience of you know, seeing where the men fought and died. And then the two of them are sitting closer than, than Lou and I are through Edward Everett's two-hour address <laughs> um, before Lincoln stands up to give his speech. So Seward is right there as his right hand. I, I don't have the, the hard evidence of, of his changes, but I think it's reasonable to think he had sure. some role. And we know, just to explode the myth, Lincoln did not write it on the train going to Gettysburg. We know that he was working on the speech that evening in Gettysburg. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, Warren Bender's my name. Uh, as you said, uh, uh, Seward was a, an outspoken abolitionist. It may have even or probably did cost him the nomination. Uh, and his wife was uh, even more radical than he was in terms of integration. But yet he stayed on with uh, Johnson and was one of his uh, strongest lieutenants as he uh, helped Johnson overcome the impeachment efforts. And Johnson, is, would, you might even say, was the father of Jim Crow here in uh, in America, certainly reverse what we would assume Lincoln's course would have been. How do you explain the fact that uh, he stayed so loyal to, uh, to Johnson? So, so it's a good question. Um, uh, Seward did not view it that way. He viewed what Johnson was doing as really basically the same as what Lincoln was doing, trying to, as soon as possible, bring the southern states back into the Union. So you recall that during the Civil War, Lincoln sets up governments in Louisiana and other places. Um, these are not governments where blacks are voting, where, um, where blacks have extensive rights. Lincoln might wish that they would have more rights, but he views that as a question for the states. Um, and that is Johnson's view as well, that the states should come back in and should be represented in Congress, and Seward thinks he's right on that. Seward often suggests that Johnson should express himself more tactfully, but he thinks that um, uh, on the big questions that Johnson is right, and so he supports him. Yes, sir. Uh, Jeff Newman. Uh, the first question put to you by the moderator was to ask for a handful of factors as to why Seward was denied the nomination. And as you know better than I, four or five years ago, Harold Holzer writes a book called Lincoln at Cooper Union, the speech that made Lincoln president, referring to the speech a few miles south of here where this fellow from Illinois comes in and articulately and, uh, and methodically dismembers the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott. Do you agree with, with Harold Holzer's thesis that that was, let's say, another significant factor in denying Seward the nomination? Yes, I think the Cooper Union speech was important in making Lincoln a viable candidate, but it's important not to lose sight of the fact that as the convention opens, um, the conventional wisdom is that Seward will get the nomination. It, it isn't, if the speech had truly made Lincoln the president, then the, the sort of the, the favorite would have become Lincoln rather than Seward. And that never happens. I mean, uh, a, a talented and uh, hardworking journalist who was there um, at uh, Whitelaw Reed writes that on the eve before the voting, 
Almost every man present at the Chicago convention would have predicted that on the next day, Seward would get the nomination. So Cooper Union helps to make Lincoln viable, but there are other things that, that I think ultimately um, deny Seward and grant Lincoln the nomination. Let's try and get these two last questions in. Yes, sir. That's uh, Adam Rodriguez. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the uh, either accuracies or inaccuracies about the uh, portrayal of Seward in the Spielberg movie. Whether mannerisms or little idiosyncrasies that we might not have picked up on? Um, there are a lot of little factual things that are not so in the movie. I mean, as I sat there, I, I you know, I, <laughs> but I think in big picture, the picture, the portrait of Seward is pretty correct. I mean, we started with that topic with the, the quote from Noah Brooks, and that's recognizably the way you know, David Strathairn plays Seward. He's, you know, he has a cigar, he's got a glass of wine, he's, um, you know, he's, and he's a very sort of likable political guy. Um, so I think in big picture, the movie does a pretty good job of capturing Seward. Although Lincoln never called him Seward, right? He called him governor. He called him governor. Uh, it's a little thing. But. Yeah, <laughs> these, these, these little things. Um, uh, but, yes. Um, Last question. Uh, Karen Abbott, um, you mentioned earlier that Seward was involved in counterintelligence early in his tenure. Um, one of the first arrests of the war, high-profile arrests, was of a woman named Rose Greenhow in Washington, who went on then to antagonize Seward uh, in the press quite a bit. Um, and I know that she did that, um, hoping that, that Washington was practicing appeasement. They didn't want to make a martyr out of this Southern woman. Do you know what kind of debate went on between Seward and Lincoln and any of the other intelligence people about how to handle these women who were quite bold because they knew the government really wasn't going to do anything to them? And of course, the government never um, hung a woman until Mary Surratt. So uh, yeah. if you could talk about the debate internally. I wish, I wish, I wish that, you know, I had, you know, people say that the era of email is going to be terrible for historians, but I think it's actually going to be pretty good because a lot of what happened face to face with Lincoln and Seward would now happen by way of emails. Um, and hopefully the government is preserving that. I don't have, you know, I don't have Lincoln and Seward, you know, talking about whether to arrest her. I'm, I, I said earlier that I think most of these arrests were started by other people. I think that one was very clearly Seward's decision because he knew her from pre-war Washington society. He'd been a guest at her dinner table and vice versa. Um, so I think that he was the one. And that was one, you know, some of these arrests are questionable, but that was one that was clearly right. I mean, we now know from her own memoir that she was spying for the Confederates. She was proud of feeding the Confederates with information about the Union military movements. and so. He was clearly right to arrest her, and they, you know, they then expel her from the country. Walter, before we adjourn to a uh, book signing, I have one final question. Uh, one thing that struck me reading your biography is Seward loved to travel. The guy probably was the best traveled, most traveled politician of his year. I mean, he travels the world after retirement. Uh, have you thought about that? I mean, what's behind that, that, that drive, that passion to see the world? Um, he loved to meet new people. 
um, that's a key element of it to, to you know, um, he, so th this is not just uh, something that sort of hits him in his retirement years. I mean, as a young man, very young, his father proposes a trip to Europe and Seward persuades himself that he should leave his wife and two children uh, and spend nine months with his father tromping around Europe. And he loved it. He wrote home about hiking in the mountains of Switzerland and finding references to Washington and Adams in the British newspapers in the library. Um, he, you know, he, at, late in life, when he returned from his round-the-world trip and he met his friends and neighbors, he said that um, he had discovered that at his age in life, to rest was to rust. And nothing, was, nothing remained to prevent rust but to keep in motion. But he went to China. <laughs> he went to China, yeah. right. Well, I learned in your book, your, your wonderful biography as well, that in 1870, William Seward had accepted an invitation to speak at the New York Historical Society. It was the only invitation that he had accepted. Uh, unfortunately, he had to cancel. His, his hands were palsied at that point. And while Seward wasn't able to be here in 1870 to speak, I feel that you have certainly summoned his spirit tonight. <laughs>